This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases. Not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to 157 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And a couple of weeks ago, I had Elizabeth Bright of episode 155, who was talking about menopause. And today we have Claire Snowden-Darling talking about menopause. Now, strangely, I've been looking for somebody to talk about menopause for um, probably about eight or nine months. I've been looking for someone to talk. And then like buses, along they come two at a time. So it's I met Claire at um, the PhD conference in May and she did talk a little bit about menopause there. So I thought she would be a brilliant guest to have on. So hopefully this will be really good for some of the ladies out there that have been looking for some answers around menopause. So let me tell you about Claire. Claire Snowden-Darling is a menopause expert and coach. She is the creator of the clinic model, the Triangle of Hormonal Health and the modality Functional Kinesiology. She is the head of the College of Functional Wellness, an internationally accredited college offering professional training to practitioners on hormones and diet. She has been in clinical practice since 2007 and founded the Balanced Wellness Group of Clinics. She is the author of a book on how diet and hormones can be optimised during menopause, due for release next year. Claire is frequently mentioned in the press on these subjects. So let's go and hear from Claire. Welcome, Claire, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited too, because I really want to hear about this topic. We always start with where in the world are you? So I'm in Portsmouth in Hampshire in the UK, right down south. Right on the south coast. Excellent. Why don't you start by telling us your low-carb, keto, carnivore journey, wherever you are, 
and how you how you found it and how you came to it and what was going on for you at the time that you changed or found it yeah brilliant thank you so well my my story kind of starts in 2004 when I had my daughter and I went through major birth trauma with her and it left me with postnatal depression postpartum psychosis a whole raft of different um, mental health issues but I came out of recovery with um, chronic fatigue syndrome and I was I mean absolutely just I just remember being absolutely exhausted and before then I had never been interested in nutrition I just I, I was just you know I guess just a pretty ignorant about it 25 years old not in the slightest bit interested and then I was so desperately trying to get myself well that I, that was when I started getting into going to the gym and I started getting into a bit of nutrition and just trying to eat more healthily and I uh, during that process discovered the therapy that I then went in one of the therapies that I went and trained it but my main therapy which is kinesiology and a big chunk of kinesiology is supplementation it's nutrition and so I sort of was sort of hurtled onto this journey of nutrition and supplements and biochemistry and it's just all wonderful and very very exciting but despite having opened a clinical practice and, you know, got really good at kinesiology and studied different bits of nutrition and loads of other things, and I was doing everything that I was teaching everyone else to do. I wasn't getting better. And a lot of the principles, and, you know, this, by the point, this kind of just coming to sort of 2010, 2011, there was an awful lot around juice fasting. There was a lot of brown rice. There was a lot of... Um, a lot of vegetarian diets. I mean, I literally tried everything. I have been a raw food vegan. I was pescatarian. I did everything. And yet I had this stubborn fatigue and this stubborn weight. And what I didn't know, and in fact, it took the medical model a really long time to catch up, was that actually my my chronic fatigue was, um, I suppose now we would call it sort of real adrenal burnout. And it led to um, something called premature ovarian insufficiency, which they call early menopause, but it is actually a condition in its own right, but it presents as menopause. It's the, your periods getting messed up, the massive weight gain, the brain fog. I mean, it is all the 34 symptoms of menopause. And in fact, it, 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 it flares up. So it's not stable. It's not like a menopause where you know you know that, that this has got an end date I was uh, 36 when I started on that trajectory and I didn't get diagnosed until I was 40 I'm 47 now and still no way you know the end is not in sight so it's something that we have to manage often and in my case it flares up like an autoimmune condition so my weight has been the most unstable part of my journey I can you know just pile on weight for no reason and I think it was in about 2015, I discovered the PFC plan, which I think you may have sort of spoken about, but the PFC every three, which I believe was um, originated by Mark McDonald, and then made quite famous by uh, a woman called Cassie Bjorg, who at the time was a dietitian, but because she was not recommending the American medical diet actually had to not be a dietitian. So I started following PFC, but it's still, I think there was still too much carbohydrate. So the premise of that is you have, you make sure every meal you have your protein, you have a couple of fats, 
and you're choosing one starchy carb portion, very small portion per meal, and you have your, your non-starchy carbohydrates. It's a great way to get people, I suppose, eating a more balanced diet. It just was not enough for me and where my hormones were. And so I then had, sorry, go on. I was going to ask you, what does PFC stand for? Uh, it stands for protein, fats, and carbohydrates. Oh, okay. So the PFC is just the macronutrients, and it's just a way of making sure, because a lot of people, um, they categorize the macronutrients. So our proteins are only meat, fish, eggs, tofu, and protein powders. So you can start to see that vegans in particular, where they're using their beans and their legumes, they're very hard, high in carb and very low in protein, but they're using it as a protein source. So one of the reasons why why I quite liked it and why we use it as a first step in our work, I say our, that's my, my invisible business partner, uh, why we use it in our work is, is because it's, it's teaching people about the macronutrients. But for me, and actually for an awful lot of my clients, when there is a hormone instability and a history of gut disturbance, it just, it just wasn't enough. And so to shift the stubborn weight and start to get my hormones under control, I, I went very uh, sort of low carb um, and around about 2015. I think truthfully, I ended up in quite a disordered eating place with it because I, it was the sort of first time I'd launched myself into that arena and it took quite a lot of rewiring and rewiring, I suppose a lot of conditioning around food to find a path to do it in a way that was healthy, self-loving. Um, and for me, that actually ended up being keto carnivore. And now I'm what I would consider a more meat-based carnivore. So I'm not always in keto, but it's always low carb. Right. So when you say, um, I've got a few things here. When you say you had disordered eating, was that when you when you went low carb keto? it wasn't when I went low carb keto no it was when I was just yeah uh yeah it was it was I just went I think I I think I got into a place where I suddenly felt like I was on a diet and I then put myself into diet culture and I just started making my portions smaller and smaller and smaller and I I just didn't know how to do it and and, and I still think that the kind of work that, you know, we do, I still think it's quite progressive, actually. Any the keto movement now, obviously, is, you know, very, very well known. But I think they're still quite progressive in terms of how a lot of people eat and how they get their heads around thing. And it definitely put me in diet culture to begin with, which is now why I've found, you know, I had to work hard to actually uh, unwire my conditioning around fats. Yeah. That was the really big one to stop being scared of fats. Um, and that took some time for me. And then as soon as I got there, it was, you know, incredibly liberating. Yeah. Um, I, I, I get that because I have always, I've always used saturated fats. I've always um, kept it, you know, I never went to margarine. I can't stand margarine. Mm. Um, I always had the fatty bits of the meat and things like that, but I always used to, always used to feel guilty, like I'm yes. damaging myself. And so when I first, the very first time I went, which I didn't know it was, but it was low carb, um, I sort of came off of it and then and then my weight ballooned. But so the second time when I came to it and then I was under, understood a bit more, I was still scared of fats, even yeah. though 
I've always eaten loads of butter and, you know, thick butter on my bread and everything like that. And it was only because I spoke to my friend who was a, a nurse and a, a nurse lecturer. And she, she was low carb at the time. And she said, no, it's fine. I think otherwise I would have given up again. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think there's so much around, you know, back in my 20s, I did all of the Weight Watchers things. I did all of the slimming world things. And of course, the, the conditioning around the carbs are OK. It's OK to eat those funny processed marshmallowy rice crispy things that because they're only 97 calories and they're fat free. So to make that transition took took quite a lot of uh, faith, I suppose, and just and I was just so terrified of piling on weight. And so I actually took doing it for a while to realize that I didn't and then my weight stabilized and then I lost weight and then my energy improved and now all my symptoms are, you know, managed. That was key. Yeah. So I want to go back also because you said kinesiology. Now I know what kinesiology is because I have been using it for 22 or 23 years, something like that. Um, I even did a one of the basic training um, courses yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, I know about – I I back then, which would be 2001-ish, I did a basic kinesiology and a basic hypnotherapy course, and then I followed through with the hypnotherapy course. Um, but, you know, I think kinesiology is wonderful, and I used to go every month to see a kinesiologist until we went into lockdown and then – we had to stop um but yeah I think it's wonderful so I thought maybe you it could is wonderful the listeners what it is mm. so kinesiology is um not to be confused with kinesiology tape or the 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 kinesiology degrees which they have in America which are the study of movement it's actually about how about the, it is about movement it's about how um energy is flowing around your body at a basic level a bit like in that comparison acupuncture but with kinesiology what we actually have is a brilliant technique called muscle testing some people call it muscle monitoring but muscle testing where we're actually using the muscles and the way that I like to describe it is we're testing a muscle to feel its response so people have often been to a chiropractor or a physio where they you know do some kind of you know just checking does that muscle work properly with kinesiologists, uh, we refine the muscle testing. And when a muscle is, uh, like when, when we're trying to get it to lock, we're, it's like we're trying to flick on a light switch and we're waiting to see, you know, does that light bulb go on when I put the switch on by the testing of the muscle? If it doesn't, we then start our investigative, I can't say that, investigative process. So is it the switch that's not working? Is it the cable that's not working? Is it the bulb that's not working? Let's go and have a look. And from the perspective of kinesiology, there are 50 muscles in the body that link via the nervous system into our acupuncture meridians, which means that we're actually having a conversation, almost like with the organs, with all these energy centers of the body. So, for example, loads of muscles in your neck are actually linked to your stomach. So when people come in with neck pain, we're thinking food intolerances, we're wondering if they're digesting, we're looking at all those things. If people have got, uh, if they've got, you know, um, really bad hips, we might be thinking about their hormones being imbalanced because of the muscles in the hips that are connected to the hormone circuits. So it's a very um, 
uh, forensic way of working. Um, but yeah, there's so much that you can find out with kinesiology and it is truly magical. It's not mystical, it's magical. And and it, yeah, it can be absolutely life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so we're now, so 2015, how did you find low carb? What, what led you there? Well, actually, it was working with uh, Cassie, who was the PFC aficionado at the time. And I'd worked with her privately. And we kind of, and, and PFC is low carb. It is a, a lower carb option. It's not keto by any stretch of the imagination, but it is high protein, uh, sort of moderate fat and lower carb. But basically, she, I needed to go, you know, really low carb to get the, the weight shifted because I didn't know at the time I was perimenopausal. And now I understand that I was actually in perimenopausal insulin resistance. So starches were just not my friend. My body couldn't process them at all. So that was actually guesswork on her part. And I didn't actually get diagnosed. I think it was till about eight months later, by which point I started to lose weight on very, very low carb. Right. Okay, cool. So today we're going to talk about menopause. I have so many people asking me to get somebody on about menopause. Um, so I'm really excited about what you're going to tell us. So do you just want to riff a little bit around menopause or? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Questions? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's it has been the most, um, you know, it's been one of those journeys where you realise that the universe is going to put you where you're needed. And and for me to be grateful for my journey, because I had no clue about menopause. I mean, I found out from a, a te school teacher that we only started teaching about menopause last year in schools, which is unbelievable so I had no clue I remember getting sitting in this doctor's office and getting this diagnosis and in my mind I was like but that's for really old women like why what and I felt so much shame around it and so much stigma um and I mean god I remember at the time as well I think about 2017 I left my husband and started dating and it was one of those kind of oh my god at which point do you disclose to people that you're in this horrendous word like because it, there's so I just felt so much stigma attached to it but I then started to realize as a clinician working with you know literally hundreds of women if I'm feeling this and I don't know the answers nobody knows the answers and I had through my own journey started to make this connection this understanding I didn't know we went into insulin resistance in perimenopause and I can talk more about that but I'd started to make this connection between blood sugar stabilization and my flare-ups and so okay well they keep telling me I'm in early menopause but I keep getting these flare-ups then I found out just through um, inquiry really in my clinic and, and paying attention that even women going through what I would consider a, um, a standard menopause. They also have times where it's just not under control and they're in free fall. And this, this connection between blood sugars, stress, and our sex hormones and their fluctuation, they're hugely connected, hugely. So it was going through this um, 
I suppose this period of research, but I don't think I was actively researching. I was just trying to figure it out for myself and paying attention that I came up with the triangle of hormonal health, which is actually the basis of all the work that I now do and all the work moving forward and the practitioner teaching uh, courses that I teach and you know all of this kind of stuff. And it really is this connection between blood sugars, stress hormones and sex hormones. So as we go into perimenopause, um, which and perimenopause is such a vague phrase because you know, if, if women are actually menopausal in their 50s, then technically we could be going through to perimenopause in our late 30s. In fact, you know, simple maths would say that some women are going through it in their early 30s. So perimenopause, it's like it's um, the way that I describe it is throughout your life, you're, you know, you have your estrogen and your progesterone that come in. Um, they, you know, come online properly during puberty and then they track along quite nicely together. And then at the beginning, the very onset of perimenopause, progesterone starts falling off a cliff. Everyone talks about estrogen, 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 estrogen. Estrogen's not affected for a long time. Our progesterone is what falls off a cliff. Now that is these, okay, I'm suddenly in my early 40s piling on weight. What's going on? My sleep's a little bit off. I'm shouting at my kids a bit more. Um, I'm so tired and I don't know what's wrong with me. All of these kind of things are very suggestive of perimenopause. But of course, you go to the doctor, they do a blood test. They don't check for progesterone and they only do a blood test if you're under 45. If you're over 45, absolutely no chance of a blood test. They just say, oh, you know, you're probably perimenopausal. So women can feel like they're going crazy because something's not right. They don't feel like themselves, but there's nothing specifically wrong. So then we've got our progesterone falling off a cliff, often piling on weight, the brain fog's happening, the memory shortage, probably getting some hot sweats. And then eventually our estrogen starts to go haywire. Those are the night sweats. That's the joyful vaginal dryness. It's all of those kind of things. Um, and then our periods start to become destabilized and eventually stop. That's when our estrogen has also, you know, sort of bottomed out and we've got very, very little of both. So that's kind of what's happening during the peri perimenopause, peri menopause to menopause transition and I think the problem with this word menopause is nobody really knows what it means and if I've just got a little bit of uh, brain fog and I'm not sleeping am I in menopause but I can't be because I'm 42 that's for women in 10 years time and women don't really I don't think are educated that it can be this whole time in our life and it's usually at the point where our children are making us busy. You know, there's a, a lot isn't there involved with having children and schools require ever such a lot from us. Um, work, it's usually, you know, it's kind of peak years for work and busyness, socialising. The pressure on women at this time is huge, which exacerbates then the perimenopause symptoms. And that is why we have to then be so careful with our diets, have a knowledge of what is going on so that we can start tweaking our diets, work on our stress and actually give ourselves a better transition. Yeah. So what would you recommend for women that find themselves, maybe just they're noticing some of the symptoms that you've mentioned. Um, 
maybe they're not sleeping well, maybe they're pretty crabby, you know, what could they do at that point? Yeah, so one of the things I'm really fascinated by is why we've got to this point of, you know, why is menopause suddenly being talked about? Why are women having these awful menopauses? What is going on? And one of the things that I'm really fascinated by, when you look at what happened with food, in particular with wheat grain in 1969, what happened in 1969 was the wheat grain, which used to be fairly uh, low in gluten, um, was it was hybrid. So it was very uh, susceptible to being knocked over in the wind and uh, you know pests and all those kind of things and so the grain was hybrid in 1969 and the, we now have this dwarf wheat you know that is this global uh, wheat that is you know, produced everywhere and you can see as you drive past wheat fields can't you it's like very uniform height it's all very perfect and so what's happened is that wheat is now cheap it is easy to produce and it is in everything the gluten content in that wheat went up exponentially when the grain was hybrid but nobody ever tested it back then and a lot of us um, now believe that it's not fit for human consumption at all you know grains in general aren't brilliant for humans but it's been exacerbated for sure by this overconsumption of this hybrid wheat grain then in 1980 know why they ma they made the wheat short no um combine harvesters if, when it was big and flowing and falling over they couldn't pick, use the combine harvesters so they um, made it shorter so that they could pick it up with combine harvesters yeah so yeah um, and, and and that in itself you know all for this mass produced agriculture which is just not good for our for our you know the human body it's like the last thing on in this is the thought about human health yeah so then we also started spraying that with essentially, you know, glyphosate, Monsanto Roundup, and that is an antimicrobial. But what we now know, you know, we owned, that was in the 1980s, we started spraying it. We only discovered the gut microbiome in 2012. So we had no clue that we were obliterating our gut microbiome with this antimicrobial. Yep. So what we're now seeing is firstly, this generation of women, I sort of sort of talk about the generation at the moment, I sort of put somewhere between you know, 40 and 60, like that's the generation of women who have been affected by the wheat grain um, sort of transition, all of this kind of the antimicrobials. But also I talk about the generation of women going through menopause now. We're the first generation of women where we weren't told you could have it all as some kind of, you know, positive thought process. We were actively encouraged to have it all. We're the first generation of women where it wasn't just assumed that when you got married, you gave up your work. And, you know, GCSEs, A-levels, you're going to have to work really hard. You're going to have to do that, you know, go to university, have this amazing career. But you mustn't stop being a size 10 and you've got to do your exercise like Jane Fonda and have this perfect house because, you know, Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen's going to show you how to do all your MDF and your nice cushion and have this phenomenal relationship but always look really sexy and then you're going to be a perfect parent and so this you must be you must achieve everything this sort of perfectionism that's been put on this generation of women has led us to 
massive amounts of burnout, like huge amounts of burnout. And so we have gone through firstly being nutritionally depleted. And then, you know, that's before we even start thinking about the low fat fad that happened in the 80s, all this low fat trend, plus all of the wheat, plus this elevated sugar consumption, because, you know, after the war, suddenly sugar was everywhere. So this huge amount of sugar, huge amount of you eat, huge amount of low fat, huge amount of pressure. We are now in a place where our bodies are not able to cope with the menopause transition. So I'm particularly interested in that because I'm interested in what the stress is. And we've talked about some, but I like to break it down and call them stressors. What are the stressors on the human body? Because there are some that we can prevent and there are others that we can't and so the way that I like to look at it is we're just like wi-fi bandwidth we only have so much bandwidth and so we have to free up as much bandwidth as we can to ensure that we have this really decent menopause transition and I truly believe that one of the best ways that we can do that is with our diet yeah so let's assume that most people listening are already dealing with their diet, mm. um, already low carb, maybe keto, maybe carnivore, or are in that pre-contemplation place of they're really thinking about doing this. What? Let's just so let's pick someone. Let's say somebody's keto, for example. So very low carb, um, probably eating a good amount of fats, and hopefully plenty of protein what else could they be doing to help themselves mm. great question so when we go back to the stressors I didn't explain why as well I want to give I want to give that because I love explaining this to people um, I'm going to come back to that question in full uh, one of the reasons that, that is so important to free up this bandwidth is if you remember I said at the beginning of perimenopause it's our progesterone that drops off and our progesterone is our calming hormone it's our mood it's sleep it's um weight stability it's all the really juicy delicious stuff it gets us into the parasympathetic nervous system which means that we're able to rest digest calm down you know it stops us being anxious it's just so overlooked by the medical model it's untrue but it's the progesterone, like I said, that drops off. Now, the reason that that's important is because we can stop. We're, we're going to lose a lot of our progesterone because of menopause, but we can stop losing too much to put us into this you know, awful menopause state if we don't have stress. Because the way that the body makes progesterone it actually makes a big chunk of our progesterone in our adrenal glands, which, of course, are responsible for stress hormone. If we are, what the medical model see progesterone for is that it, it, it lines the womb and gets it ready for a pregnancy. So our bodies kind of look around us, you know, use all of our senses to look around us and go, how stressed are we? How, how much danger is there? Because if there's a lot of danger, I'm not going to make progesterone. I'm going to make stress hormone. And so we can stop the body from making the stress hormone by actually freeing up bandwidth diet being one of them so one of your questions if people are already eating in this way I, was, I would say I was going to say also the thing with progesterone and you're saying it's for creating a baby lining the womb 
if the body senses that it's in a stressed place and that stress could be a real stress or it could be an imagined stress it's also telling the body it's not safe to make a baby it's not safe to make a baby so therefore it doesn't need the progesterone as well because it's not no. going to make a baby if you're in this stressed place exactly right and you know it's very common the women that i see in clinic tend to be the ones having the very challenging menopause where their hrt is not working or they've tried everything and it's just it's you know really struggling but then they come in with their health history and you start to see okay they've had a history of you know maybe they had bad periods when they first started their bleeds they were put on the pill for that then they were having miscarriages whilst they were trying for a family. You know, then you're starting to see this pattern of someone probably with a low progesterone profile their entire lives. And in fact, one of the things I really wanted to say is I'm not just seeing this in peri to postmenopausal women. I'm seeing it in 15-year-old girls. I'm seeing young girls with really sort of sporadic bleeds coming in. And when we finally, you know, manage to persuade their doctor to do a blood test, they have normal levels of estrogen, but untraceable amounts of progesterone. So this situation, this is a huge situation. And it is, you know, it's our, our, our daughters, our, their generation is going through it in probably in a worse way than, than, than we are. So all of the education that we get for ourselves, we now need to be passing on to that next generation because it's just going to be so messy otherwise. So, yes, yeah, so if someone is already eating in a low-carb high fats, all of those kind of things way. Um, one of the big stressors is food intolerance. And so I always like to, you know, the, the people listening to this are going to be mostly educated about a lot of food. So that's, you know, super exciting. And I get people coming in where they're genuinely still eating Pop-Tarts for breakfast and have no clue that that's not nutrition. So hopefully this wouldn't be so much of a big tweak, but there is food intolerance is, is this massive stressor on the body because it's we've eaten it it's inside our body it's not something we can get away from or wash off it's now inside our body and commonly we are eating those things on a fairly regular basis so obviously if you know you've chosen a low carb keto diet you're not going to be having things commonly like wheat which is you know that's one of the biggies but dairy can be a huge trigger and sensitizer um obviously sugar but we're not doing that on the low carb we know better eggs can be a huge trigger and sensitizer um nuts can be a huge trigger and sensitizer and the nightshade family so of course often on a low carb diet we kind of start navigating more towards well i can have a salad with that i can have the greens with it but actually for some people those foods are highly sensitizing and if you know, women are still having, well, people, sorry, I was, I was talking about menopausal women, then I'm so in a groove of saying it, but if women are still having symptoms, even though they're doing the low carb and or they're doing keto, I would suggest looking at food intolerances and the things that you're eating every day. I mean, it's not going to be something you never eat. And actually looking at what do I need to do to further eliminate things from my diet because something's still not quite right. Mm. It's making me think eggs. And eggs are an interesting one. It's usually the egg whites because they're the protective bit. And usually in the same way with vegetables, it's the the, the chemicals that to protect the plant from being eaten, which are what affect us. It's the same with eggs. It's the egg whites. So commonly people can eat the egg yolks, but not the egg whites. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Cool. So nowadays, 
and I'm going to talk about let's talk about HRT nowadays people are on HRT from a very young age either going on the pill they've been on the pill for a long time and then we're coming up to menopause and people are thinking do I need to go on HRT what talk to us about HRT yeah so when women say do I need to go on HRT my question how bad are the symptoms if you if you haven't had any symptoms and you've failed through menopause firstly well done you that's a great gut and a good immune system and you've done something right up till now but if you've had no symptoms if it, if it ain't broke why try and fix it however there is also an argument let's just try and be really unbiased here because there is also the argument that menopause itself is a life limiting um transition and our arteries can harden and you know we end up with bone density loss and there's loads of things associated with menopause which we can do other work on i'm not you know pushing hrt but you know some people would say actually that could prevent some of these you know uh, it's offset some of these negatives that i would say is entirely up to the women if they are or aren't having symptoms however as I've said, there are women having horrifically challenging menopauses. I mean, I could barely get out of bed for a year. And so when we're in that place and life is not worth living and, you know, one of the, I, I, I hear women who are, where they are in suicidal ideation because they're, it, they just feel so horrific. And so in those kind of places, and it doesn't have to be that dramatic, it could just be, I can't, you know, that my vaginal dryness is affecting my relationship or the, I'm just, the brain fog means I can't work anymore. Um, I did have a GP tell me just to give up work. And I was like, yeah, I'm self-employed. I can't actually truly give up work. Um, so in those kind of situations, hormone replacement can be, you know, literally life-saving. But I am so passionate about women understanding the differences between HRT and I think it feels quite murky if we don't know the difference. There's also at the moment a huge push from celebrities and from celebrity doctors about certain types of HRT. And what I really want to bring awareness to is that some forms of HRT, particularly the synthetic forms of HRT, there is financial remuneration for GP surgeries to get women onto those types of HRT. Now, what we know about the synthetics are, the synthetics are very different to the natural HRTs. And by natural, I mean body identical. They're still made in a lab, uh, but they're made from yams. Um, so they, the, when you actually look at them chemically, they look, those hormones look identical to our hormones. When you look at the synthetic progesterone, and that would be in the mini pill, uh, most of the combination pills there's only one combination pill that's the body identical hormones um the marina coils the kylina coils those kind of coils and the the combined patches that would all be synthetic progesterone synthetic progesterone is highly toxic to women it actually causes um there's actually a lot of research that connects it to elevated chances of breast cancers, uh, elevated chances of strokes and artery hardening, all the things that you're trying to take the HRT to stop. That doesn't really make any sense to me. Of course, that's the progesterone that's also in the contraceptive pill. And research shows that women who are of childbearing 
ages who are on the contraceptive pill, it's such a stressor for our bodies that their natural, what they are producing, their levels of progesterone are at postmenopausal levels. And I see a shocking amount of young women coming off the pill and never getting their bleeds back because it's affected their, their it's disrupted their endocrine so much and their hormone signaling. So, uh, you know, synthetic progesterone is not our friend at all. And I get a lot of women coming in saying, I've, I've done what I've been told to do on breakfast telly. You know, I've, I've got my I've got my marina coil and I'm doing my gel pump, my estrogen gel pump. And they literally come and going, I am on the ceiling. Now, the reason for that is that synthetic progesterone, as I said earlier, progesterone calming. It's that lovely second trimester of pregnancy. Everything's wonderful. And I'm so chilled out feeling synthetic progesterone is actually it looks like testosterone so it's an, it's a stimulating hormone so at the time that we need this calming hormone we're being given an alternative that is more of a stimulating hormone and so women end up wired and then the medical model's response is often to give them more estrogen so more stimulating hormone more and more and more and that's actually when we're starting to get into things like breast cancers so when we actually look at the body identical hormones, progesterone and estrogen, like I said, our body knows what to do with them. The side effects from those are incredibly low comparatively to the synthetics. And so I really encourage women to do some education around that. There are a couple of options in, uh, in the UK um, and, and Europe. Um, and I would really recommend that if they're interested in trying HRT, that they absolutely go in and, you know, say, I want to try the body identicals and accept no substitutes. The only downside I would say is that the synthetic, the, the, the natural, sorry, the body identical progesterone, the not synthetic progesterone, it is made with peanut and soy. So for women who have got big intolerances, big gut issues, they might struggle to, you know, they might be intolerant or struggle to break it down. But that's the only negative. And then they can actually use a pessary. So in my head, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it might be something that um, someone might use in, in severe cases where they just need some help. Yeah. Maybe for yeah, a yeah, yeah. period of time yeah. while they adjust their nutrition and then ideally to transition off of it because we never want well in my in my mind we never want to be on something external we need our body to to do what it needs to do and and I'm guess you're from what you're saying is people are coming to menopause with very low progesterone to start with so that yeah. makes it a lot worse than if it was in a good place and then it tapers off, which is what it's supposed to do. Exactly right. We we are supposed to go through menopause. It's natural and normal. And we've done it for millions, billions of years. Um, let's say millions of years. Um, that's what we're supposed to do. And all menopause means is stopping the menses, stopping your periods. You know, there's nothing complicated about it in a way. It it's should be. Is it's, it's all the other stuff that we've been doing yeah. in our life that makes it exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, it should be a bit like going through puberty. We just we're just popping out the other end. Yeah, uh, it's just that's not the experience for a lot of women. And I would say yes, I absolutely agree with you that transitioning off as and when is possible. I think. I mean, I I, I tend to be at the cold face with really you know women who have been quite poorly for a lot of their lives. 
autoimmune conditions. I mean, this is actually really interesting. You know, the amount of research that shows that autoimmune conditions are also connected to low progesterone. Um, and I know, you know, the I'm sure you've covered, you know, gut intestinal permeability before. Like if people have got a history of that, they're going to have low progesterone because they'll be in a stress response. So the amount of autoimmune conditions that women are going through menopause with or if they've got a history of the you know, chronic fatigues or they were on the pill, it could take a while with the natural progesterones. And some people might not transition off of it for a really long time. And I just want to say that because I, I know that my experience is that we can, we can have such a belief in perfection, can't we? That particularly if we're trying to do things healthily, that actually if you do need that crutch because your whole health history has been a bit of a mess, okay, and you know, as long as you need it. But I agree with you. And I would love to get back to the place where the menopause is as it should be, just a simple transition. And if 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 needed, we're only using HRT for a short period of time. Yeah, I think we've got a long way to go to get to that. Oh, point. do you know what breaks my heart? Actually, my daughter is now just coming up twenty, and at university, and in her halls, there was what the eight of them in their little flats. They will share a kitchen. There was not one of those young adults that didn't have something very wrong with them, you know, PCOS, uh, Crohn's disease, just this, there was just not one of them that didn't have a major condition. And I thought, gosh, what I was 19, 20, it was, there was that one kid in school who had something majorly wrong with them. And I'm, that was, I'm, that was me. <laughs> yeah. So I think the more we educate ourselves on this and the more we actually Set the bar with making, you know, we're not the neurotic ones eating, choosing so to eat so carefully or really educating ourselves about the natural HRTs and pushing back on the doctors. We're the ones who are actually going to be paving the way for these young adults as they get to our age. Yeah. And something that um, I heard recently is that um, the pill is being pushed because it's a great money maker for the pharmaceutical companies and actually the diaphragm is much better now i was lucky because i was of that age when they were pushing diaphragms so i never took the pill i never had the pill and so i used the diaphragm but the diaphragm they don't make any money out of it because you get one you might get a replacement one in a year or two or three but you really do, it does not a big money maker, so they don't push it. Whereas they're pushing the pill because it makes the money. But actually, what we're doing to our kids is making them, you know, upsetting their hormones with hormone replacement. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I have a I have a client who is a young adult and was put on the pill because she had some period issues decided in her 20s that she wanted to come off of the pill and then didn't get her bleed it was one of those situations where she didn't get the bleed back eventually got diagnosed with PCOS now there are a few different types of PCOS it can be because of insulin resistance it can be because of too high testosterone I would argue that's too low progesterone or it can be post-pill PCOS so, so I'm so I'm sort of saying her well is that the post pill PCS or oh, I don't they, they can't tell I'm like well, well how because they can test your progesterone and testosterone but either way their response was go back on the pill but don't mm -hmm. worry about fertility until you want to have until you're married and want to have children and I thought what about 
a woman's health being governed by her ovulation. And we, you know, I'm on such a mission to crack open how the medical model is dealing with not just menopause, but women's health in general, because the more we start realizing that all of these stresses, including the pill, including, you know, all of the kinds of the, the synthetic HRTs, even as soon as we realize that they are contributing to the problem, we, we have to change it. Yeah. So I want to ask you, because your daughter's the same age as my boys. Um, how does she feel about this? That, you know, does she understand it? Does she listen to you? Because my boys mostly, Ben is a little bit, he will, he eats fairly low carb sometimes. Alex just rolls his eyes. How does she take what you know? Well, my, so it's a really interesting one. My, she was born with a, uh, a really bad milk intolerance really bad milk intolerance they diagnosed with asthma and I kept thinking to myself, it's not asthma and I and I wasn't a nutritionist then I but I thought okay I'm going to put her on to the only other option at the time which was soy and so her life was full of soy products as a child now and she didn't have any asthma <laughs> it went away and we you know as soon as she ate milk like in an ice cream get a couple of days in she dealt with tonsillitis it was very clear her milk intolerance but she definitely I could see the hormone destabilization from when she was an early teen and she does have PCOS um she's very open about it I'm not breaking any confidentiality there uh but she says so she has PCOS and it's it's been a bit of a battle but like ironically the moment that she went off to university she's sending me photos of her salmon and her broccoli and she now knows actually I have to do something about this so she's only listening I think because it's so relevant to her now um, and because she has, you know, had the pain of PCOS and some of the hair, you know, it's, it's, it's not a nice condition. And so she's now going and going, I need to actually pay attention to this because it will help me. So yeah, now, now, but only really in the last year since she's kind of gone, oh, this is a thing and I, and it's on me to manage it. Interestingly, my son, Ben, um, went off to university last year and he was sending me pictures of his pretty plates with his <laughs> salmon and broccoli or chicken and broccoli and the sauce and one of the boys in the uh in the flat asked him if he could take him to Tesco's and show him what to buy and teach him how to cook so that just made me smile when you said that but what I wanted to ask and we have spoken about this off air so I know it's okay to ask you is do you think she will avoid going on HRT, the pill, mm. um, as as now she, you know, she's old enough to probably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was super proud of her, actually, because she had a, an appointment with a doctor at her university and the doctor and she sort of went in and said, oh, I've got PCOS and blah, blah, blah. And the doctor instantly tried to recommend her to have the marina coil. I show I'm not having the marina coil because I don't want the hormones, but we, you know, evidence that shows the progesterone, blah, blah, blah. And she literally sat there and said, you can't fob me off. I know that that's a synthetic progesterone and you're telling me that it stays localized. It can't be localized. It goes into my entire bloodstream. Instead, <laughs> My mum's an international hormone expert. I was like, I must have a business card with that put on it. And she's like, I'm, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. And she was like, she said to me, she came out and she said, I was quite shaky. She said, because she comes at me with all this research and, you know, she's trying to make it sound like it was the right thing. And she said, but I, you know, I really had to sit in my confidence of, I know that that's not the right thing for me. So yeah, it is quite 
terrifying how quickly, as soon as you say the words PCOS or endometriosis or something or something, it's like, well, let's give you the pill then. Mm. But one of my clients, actually, I really want to tell this story because I've, I've said a few disparaging things about GPs and I know that there are some amazing GPs out there. But one of my clients recently had an experience with a GP and I had to write to the GP because I was like, I've never heard this before. And she'd had, have you ever heard of Dutch testing? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the dried urine testing. And it showed that while she is perimenopausal, her estrogen is perfect levels, progesterone untraceable. And she'd seen the doctor who had given her the natural everything but said that she had to have both she had to have the progesterone and estrogen and she'd done that for a while ended up so poorly and I'm sat there going you know I just you've got you you can see from your dutch test you've got enough estrogen I just think that's what's making you more poorly so she went back to the doctor and she went I don't know why you're giving me this it's just making me worse and so the doctor sort of apparently this, this she said the doctor looked very young he seemed quite young he said well I'm supposed to give you both because it says so in the NICE guidelines. But why am I giving you both if your test says that you've got enough estrogen? And he said, but the other thing I don't understand is why can I give you a synthetic progesterone only in the form of the, the coil or the mini pill, but I wouldn't be allowed to give you natural progesterone? So I get excited when I hear stories like that because I think something can crack open here and women can start to get some, you know, really good uh, healthcare eventually. Yeah. And we need to be sort of pinging these young doctors because they're going to be the doctors of the future and the ones that are teaching the ones coming through. So we exactly. really need to encourage them and push them in the right direction. However, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I, I wrote him a letter saying, I can't tell you how amazing that was. My personal mission is to actually really crack open this whole synthetic versus natural paradox um, and just get some testing. Cause actually that GP said, I want to test you in three months because that's, that is going, you know, that's not, I'm not supposed to do that. So I want to test you in three months. And I thought the amount that the NHS would save from women going back over and, and also all the antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and this, and then blood pressure medication, the amount that they would save, we could be testing women more regularly throughout their peri to postmenopause transition and give them the right progesterone HRT until they're ready for the estrogen. It would just save so much, so, so many problems. We've got a big road ahead. We do. <laughs> we do. Before we finish, is there anything else around menopause, HRT that we need to touch on? No, I don't think so. I think we've, I think we've done all of that. Mm. So can we get um, from you how how do you eat now and maybe what a, a typical day looks like or an average day mm. so uh I go through phases of being fully keto carnivore where I eat 99% of what I eat will be ruminant meat um and I do I do a, I like to do a couple of months a year of that purely from the basis of really clearing out my system the gut permeability you know helping with the gut permeability keeping my inflammation low um, and weight it stabilizes my weight um and and being in that proper keto place for the most part just sort of living life generally um i think with my history of chronic fatigue i notice i there are symptoms that are better when i'm not in long-term keto so when i have carbohydrates 
but I keep under 40 grams of carbohydrates a day. So I'm still low carb. And I have, uh, my day is usually uh, 250. I have, I have a kilo of meat in a day. So, and usually red meat. So 250 gram steak for breakfast. Um, I will have something like buffalo mozzarella with a little bit of uh, local honey. I've actually just got my own bees. In fact, they move in like this week. I've been doing a beekeeping course. So I have, so I know that they're not fed too much sugar. <laughs> does has got got some of her honeys i don't even like honey but it's good 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 yeah so i put i put a little bit of honey on buffalo mozzarella lunch will be something like some stewed um you know slow cooked brisket or stewed meat uh maybe a bit of leg of lamb um and again there might be a bit of seasonal fruit in there uh and you know my apples are coming through in my garden right now so they're delicious um ghee i do bulletproof coffee for breakfast because i love that but i put uh, collagen protein powder in it um, and then more of the same maybe some roasted silver side or roasted other meats occasionally you know I actually think chicken is for fun um, and fish is for fun but the rest of the time it's ruminant meat yeah that's me too you know mostly red meat but you know tonight we had chicken um, <laughs> but only because my husband that's what he was cooking and that's fine with me because I don't have to cook but <laughs> it's yeah it's beef and lamb are my go-tos beef and lamb some fruit yeah i go with and some occasional butternut squash courgettes you know some of the raw cheeses and uh um uh, i'm do my own pickled cucumbers so yeah a little bit of fermented foods as well do you have do you have any dairy other than yeah you said buffalo mozzarella which is not the same as cow's milk no i i stick to um where i can the a2 caseins i'll do the occasional bit of cheddar truth is i don't feel that great on it i'm I'm, like it doesn't cause a major reaction but if i have it too regularly again it's something i'll have for you know if i'm making myself a burger a nice bit of cheddar on the top yeah yeah i've recently been having raw milk how's that been it's good well i don't know i don't have a lot of milk but um it tastes like any other milk but what I've been doing is I shouldn't I shouldn't confess to this um drinking some out the bottle um <laughs> so I might have a couple of slurps of milk which I've never have done in the past um with yeah. real normal whole milk but I use in my tea I use about three teaspoons of milk so I don't have a lot of milk anyway and and I've really been cutting back on my tea as well. So mm. that's my that's my that's my vice is my tea. Yeah, yeah. My bulletproof coffee in the morning. It's just so excited. I'm, I'm never bored of it. I'm always excited by it. Yeah, I think I've I've never felt so healthy on a diet. I've never felt so stable in terms of like you know the disordered eating thing that's just so gone. I've never had such a situation where I've not been hungry, you know, literally finished eating and then wanted to eat something else. Or I've always had that sweet tooth. Uh, It's just, it's just gone, entirely gone. And it's, it's, it's freeing, actually, not thinking about food, uh, like I used to, and people kind of go, is it more expensive? I'm like, well, no, because I'm not buying the oat cakes or the gluten free bread or the all of those things. It's just going on wholesale bought, meat from you know fantastic farms so no I've just got very full freezers um yeah game changer absolute game changer yeah excellent so anything else you want to mention before we finish no I think that's it 
Cool. So how can people find you, get in contact with you, find you on social media, all those sorts of things? Uh, so I am on all social medias at Claire Snowden Darling Official. I don't know why people put the official on the end. I didn't do that. But apparently, you know, as if Claire Snowden Darling isn't <laughs> easily defined as it is. But yeah, Claire Snowden Darling Official across all the social media channels and ClaireSnowdenDarling.com is my website. Excellent. Fabulous. So I'm going to ask you to finish with your three top tips. So my three top tips are if you are doing keto and you're not quite getting there, I would really look at getting rid of the greens and getting rid of things like nuts and removing some of those food intolerances and considering going keto carnivore for a while and do, I, I call that a systemic reset, like really, really going there. Um, one of my bugbears is fasting when people are actually going through quite bad symptoms so if you've got unstable blood sugars if you have a lot of stress fasting can put more stress on the body I particularly think that's the case as women are going through the menopause transition bit I think fasting is brilliant when we've got the insulin resistant bit you know during perimenopause I think when women when women's bodies are really going through the missed bleeds it can be quite hard but I would say listen to your body if you're finding it easy do it it's when, like I used to find fasting really, really easy, sort of four years, five years ago. Now my body really struggles with it. So I go, okay, now's not the time to do it. So if you if you are really hungry, you find yourself proper hangry, um, you, you just really, uh, your mood's plummeting. I would say just wait, just wait, just, just go back to the couple of meals a day, three meals a day, come back to fasting when it feels more effortless or when you're less stressed. Um, and that stress is behind all symptoms. So, you know, getting on top of it, but it's what we call stress. Is it a food intolerance? Is it the emotional stress? And one of the things I love the most about menopause is it shines a light on the stuff that's not serving us. And so it might be that you're in some toxic relationships or a toxic work situation that those stressors are going to stop you from being able to make any of your natural hormones. So it's time to have a look at it all. Excellent. Claire, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. It's been brilliant. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. 
Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>